Okay, type A personality, 50 seconds it's been. So <clears throat> today we're going to do uh, module two, session five. We're doing Christology part two, and we're going to attempt to get through sonship, death, resurrection, and ascension today. Um, so we'll see how we do. So we're going to start right off with the sonship of Jesus Christ, but we'll go ahead and, and open in prayer first if I can get the next slide going. I guess I can't. Is the, the, the slide deal not working? Maybe my battery's off. Okay, we won't worry about that. We'll pray and then uh, see if we can get the slides going. Thank you, Lord, for um, a unique opportunity. We're always excited to learn of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And while some of the things that we say may not be new information, it is glorious information. It is glorious to speak of our Savior, to think on Him. And I pray, Lord, that that would be our attitude this Lord's Day that we would focus our hearts on Christ, not on this world, that we would look heavenward, that we would look to the throne where our King sits, awaiting the day that He will return. We thank you and praise you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So today, okay, there we go. Sonship, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, why do we have to talk about the sonship of Christ? Because there is a debate, believe it or not. Here's the debate over the sonship of Christ. Was the second person of the Trinity the son from all eternity or was this a title given to him at his incarnation, at his birth, so to speak? And this is not a question of his deity, by the way. Um, Both positions take uh, the deity of Christ. There's a lot of minor variations to these two views, but these are the two major views. The incarnational sonship position Meaning, um, and we're going to go fast today. I'm sorry, that's just what we have to do so you can get the slides online. Um, the incarnational sonship position, the main support for this comes from Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me as a son. And so this position says that the sonship of Christ was a role that he assumed at the incarnation. This is an expression of Christ's willing submission to the Father for the sake of our redemption. So it's not that he became God, that would be a heretical position, but it is that he was now named or called or became the Son of God at this point. The term Son, they would say, is applied to Christ only in connection with his incarnation. Um, So basically this position says, that the second person of the Trinity became known as the Son when he took on human flesh, and it's connected at the hip with human redemption. That that is the role of the Son, is to accomplish redemption. Now, I'm going to add a couple things to this. That is a fairly man-centered view, because it says that the Son of God, as the Son of God, is named the Son of God because of us. And I would have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, so we would take the eternal sonship position and neither of these are salvation issues, by the way, just so we're clear, um, the eternal sonship position, there's numerous sent statements, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only what son doesn't say that he gave the second member of the Trinity who became the, t- the son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here's the logic with this. God cannot give something that does not yet exist. And if Jesus is not yet the son of God until he's born, then that statement doesn't make as much sense. 1 John 4.10, similarly, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of the time came, the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, why is that verse important? He's at the Father's side before the foundation of the world. If God the Father is called the Father, God the Son must be what? The Son. So there's great logic there. Now, Psalm 2.7 which is quoted in Hebrews 1.5, says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This isn't speaking of a point in time when Jesus became the son. It's speaking of the eternal reality of the sonship of Christ. 
In fact, this same verse is used in Acts 13, 33 in connection with Jesus' resurrection. And so we already know that Jesus didn't become the son at the resurrection. We get that. So it identified him as the son of God in connection with his resurrection, but in connection also with the eternal, eternal nature of Christ. Colossians 1.18, Revelation 1.5, both of them speak of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. Um, so in other words, there's, there's other connotations for being born, so to speak. Firstborn in the Bible means preeminent at times. It doesn't also always mean the one who is actually born first. So there's a, there's a flex in the meaning of sonship. So we can't say that Jesus became the son. We would say that Jesus is uh, co-equal and co- uh, consubstantial. Co-equal and consubstantial means same quality and same substance. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have this eternal, unchanging relationship. And so if we say, if God is co-equal and consubstantial in the, the Trinity, if we say that God the Son became the Son at the Incarnation, now that leaves us a problem because now how do we explain the Spirit of God? Did the Spirit of God become the Spirit at some point when He was sent to the earth or, or whatever? So now uh, there becomes um, some difficulties in trying to explain the Trinity. There's enough of those as it is. But the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is an understandable metaphor, not that, it's sim- not that the Trinity is symbolic, but it's an understandable metaphor, a family metaphor that we understand, that we can grasp. We can grasp a father. We can grasp a son. We can grasp the Spirit of God. Um, I preached a sermon on this once, a little side note, uh, in pneumatology, the study of the Spirit, but I preached a sermon once on the fact that the role of the mother on earth is based very much on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we would not assign a feminine uh, identity, of course, to the Spirit of God. But uh, the role of mother, and here it is on Mother's Day, is very appropriate to say, is designed after the ministry of the Spirit of God. A helper and comforter and counselor. There's so much uh, that we can say about that. Can't do that right now. So what will we say about the sonship of Christ? The Son of God is who he is, not who he became. He is who he is, not who he became. He has always been the son. Um, if, if he wasn't the son, then now, in, in essence, the nature of the Trinity has changed. And so we don't want to go down that road. I, I don't think anybody here lost any sleep last night wondering whether you're an incarnational or eternal sonship uh, person. But suffice to say, we worship a God who has been the Son of God for all eternity, always has been, always will be. Well, let's look at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. We're going to kind of put all this in one chunk here. First of all, let's look at the biblical testimony. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is foretold. It's foretold in the Old Testament. All three, death, resurrection, and ascension, were foretold in Isaiah 52, 13, through 53.12, this is why that passage, Isaiah 53 with a couple of verses before it, and Isaiah 52 are so important to us because they tell of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. All three. And if you were here when I preached through Isaiah, we preached pretty slowly through those, that chapter and identified all three of those elements. His death is foretold. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time and after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That is a prediction of the death of Christ. Psalm 22, the entire psalm is riddled with predictions of the death of Christ. Even a description of crucifixion hundreds of years before it was invented. The resurrection of Christ is foretold in the Old Testament. 
Psalm 1610, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, it means the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. That is the resurrection of Christ through the prophetic eyes of David. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We read that already. Put that alongside Acts 13, 33. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The ascension of Christ is foretold in the Old Testament. Psalm 68, 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Put that alongside Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1 is one of the most often quoted verses from the Old Testament in the New. Maybe the most quoted, I can't remember, but it's there a lot. So the Old Testament foretold the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. Christ himself foretold his own death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Matthew seventeen nine. they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He predicted his death, which anybody can predict their own death, right? I'm standing on the edge of a cliff. I think I'm about to die, and you jump off. Okay, you predicted your death. That's one thing, predicting your resurrection. Whole different ball of wax. Matthew 20, verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. There's who's going to condemn him. They will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. That's pretty specific. In the Gospel of Mark, we get three predictions of his death and resurrection. And by the way, if you read carefully, between every one of those, before and after every one of those, the disciples do something stupid because they don't get it. And that's part of the theme of the Gospel of Mark is that the disciples' eyes are slowly being opened to the person of Jesus Christ. And so he says, you remember on one time, uh, I will die and I will be raised the third day. And Peter pulled him aside and says, may it never be. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right. Jesus also foretold his ascension. John eight twenty one. he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You could look also at John 7, verses 33 and following. John 14, 28 and 29. John 16, 5 through 7. I put those references up there. So Jesus himself predicted his death, resurrection, and his ascension. We also have his death and resurrection uh, was called typified or pictured is pictured his death is pictured in the sacrificial system of the old testament it's all over the place and we only say it's typified because the new testament uh, confirms this hebrews 9 and 10 says that the sacrificial system is a picture of the death of christ it is a shadow it's a it's a foretelling how about the resurrection jonah becomes a a type of Christ, of his resurrection. Matthew twelve thirty eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That is a prediction of his resurrection typified in Jonah. Now, we have the benefit of New Testament revelation. Would an Old Testament saint reading the the story of Jonah say, oh, this must mean that the Son of God is going to come to earth, die and be raised in three days, just like Jonah? No, but we can look back and see that if God can save a man from the belly of a whale, he can save a man from death. And so um, Jesus becomes now the fulfillment of Jonah's picture The resurrection is typified in Abraham and Isaac. Genesis chapter 22, 
You recall that Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And so he gets this close. He's, he's about to take the knife and to, to strike his son on the altar. And the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself from heaven, calls to him and stops him. Now, why would Abraham sacrifice his son, who is the child of promise, through whom the nation of promise was supposed to come? Why would Abraham be willing to do that? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us, beginning in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here's his reason. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And of course, you recall that this offering, almost offering, took place on Mount Moriah, basically the same site of the crucifixion. And the same site, and, and we forget this too, the, the tomb of Jesus was in the same vicinity as the cross. It was all in the same area. Um, and so it would have been in the same area as the resurrection as well. So in other words, whatever location Isaac was almost sacrificed, you probably could have thrown a rock to where the tomb of Jesus would be. It would be that close. So the death and resurrection of Christ are typified. The death and resurrection of Christ were witnessed. Here's just a few samples. The death of Christ was witnessed by Pilate and by his executioner. Mark 15 the, the resurrection of Christ was witnessed by the angel at the tomb. The disciples on the Emmaus Road witnessed the resurrected Christ. And he came and sat with them and then disappeared from their midst. And they said that their hearts were burning within them when he was proclaiming to them Christ from the Old Testament. 500 witnesses at once. 1 Corinthians 15, 4-8. This would have been on a hillside uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is almost certainly the time when Jesus said to go therefore into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's when he told them that. Peter witnessed the resurrected Christ and he preached this in Acts 2 and Acts 3. Stephen witnessed the resurrected Christ he saw him in, in heaven as he was dying. And of course, I'll add one more. The Apostle Paul witnessed the, the resurrected Christ. Um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul didn't know who he was. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This was the resurrected Christ. So he is, the resurrection, the death, resurrection, and ascension are foretold. They're typified. They're witnessed. We also would say that these things are proclaimed. The death and resurrection of Christ are absolutely essential to the gospel of the apostles, the apostolic gospel. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is just a symbolic way of saying your entire whole person, your heart, your mouth, Everything believes that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. So can you be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection? No. You, you must believe. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ are so vital to the major sermons in the book of Acts. It's proclaimed in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 17. I had to do a whole assignment during my uh, doctor of ministry program to just write an essay on all the references to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ in the book of Acts. And they're everywhere. That is the core of the gospel, that Jesus is the one who died on the cross to save us from our sins, to pay that penalty. He was raised from the dead to prove that that penalty had been paid and to demonstrate that he has now been given new life and we will in the same way. And he has been raised up into heaven to intercede for us so that we will complete that process by the grace of God. That is the core of the gospel. So you, the, the gospel is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's just broadly. How about in the, the epistles of Paul? Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see his connection to the cross. I've been crucified to the world. The world's been crucified to me. And so he's connected with the cross. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It doesn't mean that Paul wasn't preaching other aspects of living the Christian life. It means that that is the core. That's the center. That's the foundation. That's the basis of everything. So, that's just the, the proclamation of those facts. Well, let's look at the nature and the effect of the death of Christ. And then the resurrection and, and uh, the ascension. So I told you there's a lot today. Hang with me. You're doing good. The death of Christ. Was this separation from God? That's a big question. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we have to remember that Jesus is quoting Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22. This is the cry of a godly man lamenting the suffering that he's enduring. This is the Son of God facing the wrath of God on our behalf. It's not so much that there is a separation. You can't separate the, the members of the Trinity. It's really more that the Son faced the Father and experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. I think we have difficulty saying that God was separated from God. So I I would have difficulty saying that the gospel includes the idea of Jesus being separated from the Father. So I would be careful in saying that Jesus was separated um, from the Father in the sense of lack of contact, that somehow they, they weren't connected. But there was a separation from God's presence to bless the Son. There was a separation from the fact that What Jesus had always experienced was the blessing of God. And now for a time he was facing the wrath of God. This is the same sort of separation that the unbeliever has from God in his sin. He was taking that on our behalf. And so, can I put it this way? The feeling, the experience was that of being separated. But we can't divide God. Revelation 14, 9 and 10. This is always a surprising verse to people. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on their forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. What is that? That is the lake of fire. That is hell, Gehenna. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What does this mean? It means that the People who will burn in hell for all eternity are not separated from God. They are faced with his wrath for all eternity. And I would think that they would wish to be separated from God, but that is not what is happening. So is it separation from God? No. Is it separation from his presence to bless? Absolutely. And that's what he took on our behalf in some way that we can't grasp in that three-hour time period of darkness jesus took upon himself every eternity of hell that all of us should have endured and he took it on himself it was a separation of his soul and body matthew twenty-seven fifty, jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit The Spirit of Christ separated from his body. Now, I want to be very clear. Uh, Some have said that this is the case, that it isn't. It is not a separation of humanity and deity. That's not what happened. It is a separation from soul and body. Another aspect of the death of Christ, it is a once-for-all event. We're thankful for that. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Hebrews 7.27, he has no need like those priests, those high priests rather, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So, separation from God? No. Separation of soul and body? Yes. Was it a once for all event? Yes. This is a big, big issue in the nature of the death of christ this is the center issue really and that is the atonement 
What is the atonement? It is the substitutionary sacrifice. That is the purpose of the death of Christ, to be our substitute. And this fulfills the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. If you ask a Jew today, why, why do you not make sacrifices? An unsaved Jew doesn't really know why. Well, we don't have a temple or we just lost touch with that part of our culture or whatever. The saved Jew knows why. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled all the sacrifices. He is the once for all sacrifice. There's no more need. Isaiah 53 says he is the sin bearer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he is the substitute for sin. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins. He put them on his back, so to speak. Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us. Matthew 26.28, 1 Corinthians 5.7, his blood was shed for forgiveness. So the center of the death of Christ is the atonement. That is the whole reason. Jesus did not die on the cross to be a model of sacrificial love. That's not why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to be a, a sacrifice in substitute for you. This brings us to the idea, this is very similar, of ransom and redemption. Romans 3.24, we have redemption in Christ. It means to be purchased. We are, we are bought back. That's the same idea as 1 Corinthians 6.20. Why are we to obey the Lord? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, because you've been bought with a price. You've been purchased. You don't own you. Anybody says as a Christian, well, it's my life. I, oh, stop right there. No, you've been purchased. You've been bought. 125 times the New Testament calls you a doulos, a slave, a slave of Christ. You've been purchased. Matthew 28, or Matthew 20, verse 28, payment was made in our stead. There's no, no amount of good works we could do to pay for our own sins because we can't undo our sins. Every lie you've ever told will always be a lie. Every murderous thought will always be a murderous thought. You can't undo them. And so you can't pay for them. In 1 Peter 1.18, I love this phrase, we've been ransomed from our futile ways. That it's absolute futility to try to please God, but we've been paid for, we've been bought from that. Now, just a little side note, we talked about this when we went through the atonement in, in more detail. God did not purchase you from Satan. God purchased you from himself. He owned the rights to judge you because you have sinned against him. And what he purchased what Christ purchased on the cross was that payment that was owed to God. Uh, Satan doesn't want to be in hell any more than you do. And so this wasn't a transaction between God and Satan. This was a transaction between God and God. And you were the one who benefited. And of course, the atonement, the ransom, the redemption gives us victory. Victory over death, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four. Victory over Satan. Hebrews 2, 10, 14, and 15. And no, we weren't purchased from Satan, but he wins in a sense if you're not saved. And then over Satan's hosts, we're told that. Colossians 2, 15. Why would we be told that we're, we have victory over Satan's hosts? Because until you become a Christian, you're subject to demonic power. You're subject to the powers of Satan and you, you have no idea that's what's happening. So there is the, the death, the nature of the death of Christ. What's the nature of the resurrection of Christ? Here we go. Everybody take a deep breath. Here we go. Now, the resurrection. I love how many different versions of the resurrection people have tried to come up with. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, that it was, uh, it was spiritual in nature. Well, that's spiritual in nature. What does that mean? That's like eating pretend food. It's not real. It doesn't make any sense. It was a bodily resurrection, a real body. Acts 1.3, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. There was no corruption in his body. Acts 2.31, his body was absent from the tomb. Matthew 28.16, he had a post-resurrection body that was the same one. Uh, Luke 24, 15, Luke 24, 39. He ate food after the resurrection. Did he need food? No, he just ate to prove that it was a real body. He wasn't a ghost. And in fact, uh, some of his disciples kind of thought that's what was going on. So he took food and he, and he ate it and it didn't drop to the ground. He ate it. 
He had scars on his body. He showed, and this is so important, that the resurrected, glorified body of Christ is a one-to-one correlation with the pre-resurrection, pre-death body of Christ because of the scars in his wrists and in his side and in his feet. And it's often been said that that is the one thing in heaven that is taken from the earth, and that is the scars of Jesus Christ. If you can imagine this, you will see the scars of Christ. There will be a day when you are allowed to view, and who knows, maybe even like Thomas, allowed to touch the very scars that saved you. So it was a real bodily resurrection. He had post-resurrection immortality. He is forever the glorified God-man. Forever and ever. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the ends of the earth, has a body like yours. It's just way better because it's perfected. He is the firstborn, the first fruits of the dead. Colossians 1.18, Acts 26.23, 1 Corinthians 15.20. What does that mean? Because God raised people from the dead before that. No, he didn't. He resuscitated them to breathe and have their heartbeat for a few more years. But then they died again. So he is the first human being to ever be raised from the dead and to live on forever and ever. And doesn't that give us hope? What a glorified, uh, glorious idea that God gave us an example. If he can do it with Christ, he can do it with you. What does this mean? It means that he has a glorified body. I wish we had time to just talk about this. I love this subject, but we'll just go for a minute. He had the ability to come and go at will. Luke 24, I hope we can do that. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, look at the time. Poof, I'm gone. That'd be great. He could enter into locked rooms. Luke 24, uh, John 20. Uh, It's not that he walked through walls. He just went where he pleased. It is a glorious body. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says this. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. And yet he's still identifiable as the same person. I always wondered about um, how we will recognize one another in heaven. Well, from a human standpoint, it'll be simple. You'll be the same you. You'll just be the perfected you. You'll be the you that you were meant to be. And so, yes, we'll recognize one another. And then what about the nature of his ascension? He was taken up. Acts 1, 9 through 11. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was received up in glory. In Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, he is now with the Father. This is, not a, this is not a spiritual ascension, this is a bodily ascension. And just a little side note here. <clears throat> um, I, I think there's probably more Christians today that do not believe in the rapture than there are that do believe in the rapture. And one of the arguments they'll say is, well, that the, there's, the rapture's no place in the Bible. Well, here's one. The Lord Jesus Christ himself ascending into heaven. Now, uh, I'm sorry for all the movies and books that you've read uh, that show the rapture as this instant poof, right? And you see the clothes dropping to the ground and all of that. I was scared of the rapture when I was a kid. I was afraid if I was in a really tall building, I'd be, you know, slammed up through all the through all the floors and I didn't want to be in the bathroom or in the shower during the rapture. I was scared of all of those things. But every example of rapture-like events in the Bible are slow enough to be visible. Slow enough to be seen. What examples do we have? We have Elijah being taken up, uh, not in a chariot of fire, but next to a chariot of fire. Um, We have the two witnesses of Revelation uh, 11. We have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And, And in all of those instances, there are witnesses um, we have Enoch, that he walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. Well, maybe he just disappeared. No, somebody saw it. That's why it got written down. They knew where he went. So, just a little side note there. Um, I believe that at the rapture of the church, if you are alive during that time, it will be visible and it will be slow enough to enjoy it. So, um, that's, that's what the Bible seems to indicate. Okay, what are the results of these things? The results of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is the impact of his death, salvation for sinners. It revealed the love of God. 
When somebody asks you, how do I know that God loves me? Romans 5.8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That He loved you enough to send the Son of God. Romans 3.25 and 26, His death revealed the righteousness and the wisdom of God. The death of Christ was necessary to fulfill righteousness because God is not Santa Claus. He doesn't just wink at sin. He Sin must be paid for. There must be justice. And so the justice of God is poured out on Christ. Hebrews 9 lays the foundation of, uh, the, the death of Christ rather, lays the foundation of Christ's high priestly ministry. He is our high priest, not just because he intercedes for us, but because he is the sacrifice by which we may have fellowship with God. And Philippians 2, 8 and 9 and Hebrews 2, 9 his death secured his exaltation above all things. Now, that's a whole different topic for a different day. But uh, Philippians 2 seems to indicate that because Christ was faithful, not just to come to the earth, but to come to earth as a, as a servant, and not just faithful to come to earth as a servant, but to come to earth as the lowliest of servants, and to come to earth as the lowliest of servants, to die a cruel, horrible death at the behest of his father. Because of that, he will be, I don't know how this is possible, but given even more glory, even more might, even more recognition. And the only thing I can see from Scripture that Christ could have that he didn't used to have is a church for all eternity praising his name in his presence. That's what he now has and will have for all eternity. So it secured his exaltation. That's the impact of his death. What are the effects of his resurrection? It confirmed his identity as the Son of God. Romans 1.4 says this. It validated his atoning work. And we say it this way a number of times that uh, the check that Christ wrote to pay for your sin cleared at the resurrection. The payment was complete. Romans 4.25, 1 Corinthians 15. His resurrection guarantees the believer's future, future resurrection and possession of a glorified body. We've already talked about that. But isn't that glorious? That we, we, don't, we don't just take God's word for it, which should be enough. But he came himself, second person of the Trinity, died, was resurrected, and went back to heaven so that we can say, that's what will happen to me. How glorious is that? And his resurrection guarantees the final Judgment of the world. Acts 17, 31, 24, 25, John 5, 28, and 29. I don't know for sure, but when the body of Jesus went missing from the tomb, I wonder how many of the leaders of the Jews became very nervous because they knew what he said he was going to do. He said, tear this temple down, I'll raise it up in three days. And the, and the gospel of John says he spoke of his own body. So no doubt some of those um, got saved. And we know this because some of the Christians who, uh, who, some of the Pharisees who became Christians had problems with legalism again in Acts 15. It's like, really? Again? Even the saved guys are having problems with this. And yet some of the Pharisees got saved. You'll see saved Pharisees in heaven, no doubt, because they remembered Jesus said, I would be raised from the dead, and he was. And what's the significance of the ascension? This is This is the... I, I put a lot of detail here because this is uh, not often talked about. So we're going to spend a moment on this. You guys are doing great. What is the significance of the ascension? Well, first of all, it marked the end of Christ's self-limitation. Philippians 2.6 speaks of Christ limiting himself. He emptied himself. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of deity or of the attributes of God. It means he emptied himself of showing the glory of God, of, of demonstrating all that God is all the time. Well, at his ascension, that was done. He was done with his uh, limitation. It was the occasion for Christ's exaltation and glorification. I can only imagine what the reception in heaven must have been like when the victorious Son of God arrived bodily, came into to heaven. I, I can't imagine the deafening cheer and the singing and the, and the praises. And who knows? That may have gone on for a thousand years. Maybe it's still going. What an absolute victory that all those angels 
72,000 of them that Jesus said he could have called at his arrest had he desired to. Could I not call all these legions of angels with their hands on their swords ready to come to the aid of their commander? And he didn't call them and instead he went to the cross and he died the cruel death and he took the wrath of God upon himself and now in victory, their swords out as it were not to defend him but to praise him. What a great day that must have been. The occasion of his exaltation and glorification. It marks the entrance of resurrected humanity into heaven. There is a human being with a resurrected body in heaven right now to be our example. It marked the beginning of Christ's new ministry of intercession and advocacy. Hebrews 7.25, that he is even now interceding for us. In fact, the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. That that is his, he, he continues to do that. There's not some automatic button that we have that, that keeps our salvation. Our salvation is kept because Christ keeps it. It allowed Christ to send the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower us. The Spirit of Christ is here because the physical body of Christ is in heaven. John sixteen seven. The ascension served as the opportunity for Christ to give us the gifts of men to lead the church. Ephesians 4, 8. And he gave gifts. These gifts are men. The, the, first the apostles and the prophets and then the, the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. We don't need apostles. We don't need prophets. But we do have evangelists. We, we call them church planters. And we have pastors and teachers in the church. It allows for the preparation of our future heavenly home. John 14, 1 through 3, I go away to what? Prepare a place for you. I want, I want to be very clear about this. There's not a construction project happening in heaven. Our heavenly home is ready, but it's the sense of preparing as you would prepare your home for guests, that, um, that the, the, the place settings are being laid and the, the, uh, the, the parade is being readied. And so it's meant to encourage us that heaven prepares for your entrance. And then it anticipates his return. How encouraging is this when the disciples are staring up into heaven with their mouths open. Acts 1.11, an angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so we know how the return of Christ will happen because of this. Okay, we're going to do one more thing. And there's sometimes just, this is the only opportunity we have to do these things. I'd like to talk to you about, uh, and maybe not, nobody here did, but anybody here grow up in a tradition where you said the Apostles' Creed? A few of you, uh, one, <laughs> one, we have one, and two, okay. So just so you know, Bible churches are sort of a conglomeration of people who kind of come from everywhere and nowhere. Um, that's kind of who we are. So we're, we're not blessed with those hundreds of years of traditions. But the, the Apostles' Creed, I want to talk to you about it because it has this interesting phrase in it um, that says that he descended into hell about the Lord Jesus. Let me talk to you about the Apostles' Creed, first of all. It wasn't written by the Apostles. Um, it, it's just named the Apostles' Creed uh, because it is said to represent their theology. It's the earliest known text uh, that we have to this is about 390 A.D., and so it's, not, uh, it, it's, it's old, but it's not all the way back to the Bible. Um, there's a bunch of versions, but the variations are pretty small, actually. Um, it's not equal to Scripture, but it is based on Scripture. The Apostles' Creed is a very useful tool. Um, we are not uh, what we would call a confessional church. We are not a creedal church, meaning that we have a doctrinal statement, um, but we don't have a confession, so to speak. Now, what's the difference between a confession and a doctrinal statement? Basically, a confession is a lot older. A doctrinal statement makes more use of study that's been done since those confessions. So you'll even see um, a Baptist church uh, will, will say that we are a confessional church to the confession of 1689, that that's our doctrinal statement. Um, there are confessional churches that believe if you're not a confessional church, you're out of the will of God. That's a whole different, uh, whole different topic for a different day. Um, but I will say this confessional churches and churches that stick to these creeds have historically not deviated from the biblical gospel. They have been, uh, they have been very faithful. You don't hear of a confessional church becoming seeker-friendly. 
that just doesn't really happen. And so we're thankful for them, and we, we would call them definitely brothers and sisters. But the original Apostles' Creed has this little difficulty in it. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Here's the problematic phrase. He descended into hell. The third day He arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, the Almighty. Whence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, not Catholic as in organization. Catholic means universal. So that they sort of stole a really good word that, that is, it's like the word gay now. You can't use it anymore. It's, it, it doesn't mean what it used to. But the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, Amen. Now, what is this statement, he descended into hell, based on? Well, it's based on Ephesians 4, 7 through 9. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? New American Standard says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Greek actually just says he descended into the lower part, the earth. It's, there's no of. It's not, it's not descriptive. It's just the lower part, the earth. So did Jesus descend into hell at his death? Or maybe even to, into Hades, the holding place for the dead? Whole another topic, 30 seconds on this. Hades is the place that, that, the, that the unsaved dead go to now because we know in Revelation 20, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Um, Luke 16, the, the unrighteous rich man goes to Hades to await judgment. What is Hades? The only information we have is from Luke 16 and it is a place of suffering and flames just like the lake of fire. So there's a similarity there. So that's a little side note. So did Jesus descend to hell or into Hades at his death? Well, there's basically five opinions on this. One says, yes, that he suffered for sins as part of his substitutionary atonement, that he went to hell for a while. Another opinion says, yes, to proclaim victory, sort of like a victory lap on his way to paradise, that he went to hell just long enough to kind of do a big yin, yin, yin. Another opinion, yes, to release prisoners, the righteous souls of Old Testament saints. That's a different topic for a different day. And we'll, we'll talk about why that can't be in a moment. Another opinion, yes, but it was metaphorical that it describes Christ's suffering, the torments of hell on the cross. That is Calvin's view. We get a little closer there, but... The word is very specific. He descended. He went down somewhere. So yes, we believe that metaphorically Christ endured the suffering of hell on the cross. Doesn't mean he went there because hell is a physical place according to Revelation 20. Fifth opinion, no. And that focuses on the phrase, it is finished. That when he died, the moment he gave up his, his spirit, his suffering was complete. There was no more suffering for him. Now, some will take 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. This is a little bit mind-boggling here. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here it is. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And they would say, Aha! Christ died, went to where the spirits were, and proclaimed victory to them. We have to be very specific, very precise here. The text never says that Christ died, then he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in Hades, uh, the, now in prison or Hades, doesn't ever say that. What is that? It could be 
that that happened at his death. But we want to be very clear. We're talking about three different things. Hell, the lake of fire. Talk about that in a second. Hades, the waiting room for hell. And third different place, the abyss. The abyss is a place for demonic spirits. Revelation 9, spirits are released from the abyss. Which spirits? Which demons? What was the reason for the flood? The reason for the flood was that Genesis 6, demonic spirits called the sons of God, because they were created by God, were intermarrying in some way, shape, or fashion with the daughters of men and creating some sort of horrible uh, race of demonic humans. And God wiped them out. That's a long, long study for another time. What happened to those demons? They were sent to the abyss. They're released later on. But at some point, either at his death or another point, Jesus did go to those spirits and he proclaimed victory to them. He said, you have lost this battle. That's a long topic for another day. But did Jesus go to hell? Three reasons why he did not. First of all, there's no one in hell yet. There's nobody there. Unless you take hell to be a misnomer for Hades or the abyss, then that's just, that's just a lack of precision. Second reason, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. His suffering is done. If he goes to hell, hell is a place of torment. And the third reason, Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, hang out there for a bit until I arrive. Now, is it possible that Jesus, as the um, omnipresent God of the universe, can go and proclaim victory in the abyss and be with the thief on the cross? Absolutely, that's possible. But I think at this point, we hit a wall of our understanding. But did Jesus go to hell to suffer for you? No. He did not. He suffered on the cross. The cross is where he suffered. When the darkness came and the wrath of God was poured on him in a way that we cannot fully understand. Um, we, we, we hit a wall at that point and we are not allowed in to see what happened there. That is between God the Father and God the Son. I'm so proud of Grace Bible Church. You guys did the sonship, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Um, I don't know about you, But uh, how anybody could worship anybody but Christ makes no sense to me whatsoever. None whatsoever. Well, let's pray for a moment. Thank you for your, your attentiveness. Our Father, we're in awe of your Son. And we are here today to worship Him. May our hearts be enlivened, Lord. We've heard much truth. And I pray they would, these truths would drop us to our knees. The truths of Scripture so much better than the words of men, so much better than how we try to describe truth. We thank you that Jesus has always been the Son of God. We thank you for his death that paid the penalty for our sins. We thank you for his resurrection that promises new life to us. And we thank you for his ascension by which we are now being interceded for and advocated for. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name, the one we look forward to seeing very soon. Amen.